Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey everyone, Yas here, and I just wanted to say it's great to have you join me today because I'm sure we're going to have another fantastic episode. So whether you're here for the first time or if you're one of the repeat loyal listeners of the show, I truly appreciate you. But before we get to today's guest, I just have a small favour to ask, and that's if you could just take a brief moment to hit the subscribe button if you haven't already. Ensure that you share it with all your coaching friends, and don't forget to get in touch, guys. Let me know your thoughts on what you think of today's episode or any of the recent episodes you've listened to. You can do this on Twitter, at thecoachesnet. Once again, that's at thecoachesnet. And please make sure you do, as I'd love to hear your thoughts, guys. Anyway, on to today's show. I hope you enjoy it. Have a great day, guys. The Coaches Network. Hey guys, you're now listening to the Coaches Network podcast, a podcast aimed at anyone who's passionate about athlete, talent and personal development. My name's Coach Yas and I'm a UEFA A licensed football coach, coach developer and content creator. I'll be sitting down with a range of guests to discuss their journeys, their life lessons and how you can make an impact. Enjoy. Right guys, welcome back to the Coaches Network. My name's Coach Yas and I've got a very special guest with me today. My guest today is Darren Dillon. Afternoon Darren, how are you man? Good, yes. Thanks for having me on board. Amazing. No, it's a pleasure, pleasure for me to have you here. In fact, Darren, just before we get into the heart of the conversation or um, wherever it takes us, maybe just get a bit of an insight around who you are, what you do, and we'll go from there. No problem. Um, as mentioned, Darren Dillon is my name. Um, I'm based in Dublin, in Ireland, and run a, a fitness facility called Kickstart Fitness in uh, just outside the capital, um, on the outskirts of, of Dublin, in a place called Tala. Uh, we've been running this facility for 12 years and that's taken me sort of from general pop in fitness um, into the strength and conditioning world and high performance football um, with the current league leaders and uh, current champions of Ireland, Shamrock Rovers. Um, I've spent five, five and a half seasons there, a uh, couple of European campaigns, uh, two league wins and an FAI Cup win. Uh, and um, <clears throat> I've also been uh, a master trainer for TRX for the last uh, eight years, eight or nine years. So I've um, been lucky enough to teach all the education here in Ireland and in the UK and around Europe and, and across the States um, for TRX. So um, they're obviously a San Francisco based company. and We've managed to bring what they do over across the pond here to Ireland and, and as mentioned into different countries around the world. So, so um yeah so that's basically what keeps me going amazing and obviously there's a lot lot in there in terms of loads of different experiences but um let, let's let's start with actually you know, one of the key reasons i want to kind of you know touch base with you and have a conversation was around the idea of the strength and conditioning piece and um, the fitness element and obviously we're seeing more and more in terms of elite sport especially where um you know the multiple disciplinary teams are becoming more common um and specifically, you know, how do we kind of collaborate those things together and try and get some of those outcomes? But there's going to be a lot of people listening to the podcast right now that maybe aren't necessarily working in elite spaces where they've got access to that. So, you know, what I'm hoping is that we can get to a point where at some stage people are able to take away some things from this conversation that will allow them to start implementing and achieving some of the outcomes that are kind of um, desired at an elite level or pro level. 
um, within the grassroots community settings as well. So you know, maybe just give just give us a bit of an insight around what is strength and conditioning exactly. Well, it is and should be what it says on the tin, really, as they say. So um, building strength and developing conditioning relative to your to your chosen sport or to what you do in daily life. Um, maybe using the gym or the football pitch or the training ground um, to develop, um, I suppose, as best your conditioning, your energy systems, your strength, um, to go and express what you want to express on the field or off the field or on the court, wherever it is your chosen sport is. Um, I don't think it's it should mean um, purely getting better in the gym. It should really be, um, as I said, for what you're doing outside the gym. No, no, I, th I think you're spot on. I think the, you know the way in which you just kind of really hit, and I'm going to paraphrase what you said there, is it's about becoming more efficient in whatever activities that you're participating in. Would you say that's a fair, fair, fair clarification of it? Yeah, it can it can mean more proficient. Um, it can also mean more, um, I suppose, clever, uh, smarter with what you do with, with with the tool set that you've got physically and mentally. Um, whether it's whether it's to make you more durable, you know, so you're available for selection in whatever your chosen sport is. Um, I suppose we'll speak about football, that being the you know dominant background that I've got in strength and conditioning. Um, so for me, it was about number one, um, making sure the guys were strong enough to withstand the rigors of 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 um, max effort training sessions, or to understand at the other end of the scale how to recover as hard as they train. Um, you know, understanding that their body being conditioned, you know, within a periodized frame, um, you know, to peak on at a certain day. For us, it was a Friday evening, it was when we have our game day traditionally. Um, so so we would we would gear our, our week, our training week towards, you know, being at a optimal on, on Friday evening. Um that would mean then we've got to optimize our recovery um, on Saturday and Sunday, you know, um, so the week would kind of, you know, begin at a lower level and and then, you know, look again to go and repeat the same sort of pattern in season, obviously. So being durable, um, being conditioned to handle the rigors of what's coming at you, whether that's training or on game day, um, and then understanding what I think is the secret sauce really is how hard to recover and how much effort to put into your recovery, you know, so so you're available for selection again. I think, I think you know, quite clear on what you're saying there, but I think really, you know, let's, let's explore that a little bit. So like right now we're at the stage of the season for most people where just coming off the season, um, we now think about how things have changed over the years, especially in the last two decades around what pre-season should or could look like. Um, and the efficiencies and, and, and how, how beneficial that really is. What would you say is some of the biggest things for people to start to consider? Because, you know, I, I think it's fair to say as a, as, a, as a majority within the sports industry, moving away from the idea of doing laps and, you know, the kind of the old school methods um, that were kind of approached, approached with back then. Yeah, I think I think um, I think the information, I think if I was taking part in pre-season um, 12 years ago, uh, or 15 years ago, um, it would look a lot different, or it should look a lot different to what it did um, during my last preseason with the guys I was with. And I did the preseason with them for this this year, 
Um, and our pre-season would have began in December and walked into January with a view to the season kicking off in February, usually mid-February. So, yeah, you know, obviously the research and, and the education and the knowledge that's continuously flown in our industry um, and, and continuously improving. So it does send, it does become the case that what you knew then expires because there's better ways of doing it. It doesn't mean anything was really wrong back then. Um, but like I said, it's, it, it has evolved into a space where, hey, you know what, there's a smarter way of doing this. Um, there's a way of doing less of what we maybe did and maybe replacing that with more of having the ball at their feet. Um, and, and we can still, you know, hit the, hit the ground running um, maybe in a better position. So I just think, going back to what we said about getting better in the gym or getting better, whether that, as you mentioned, doing laps or doing stuff that maybe worked when we didn't know what we know now. And um, as I said, we can streamline that and, and get the ball at the feet as much as possible because I think that's ultimately for footballers. And that's what they want to do. Um, and, and that's what they're, they're training for, is to perform at the highest level possible on any given day um, with the ball at the feet. Um, so I think, I think pre-season nowadays in, in most sort of, um, you know, I, th I see young coaches, young head coaches, managers come into the game and adapting an awful lot more of this new information and uh, more of a data-based uh, approach towards training and um, they're amalgamating the two with their own new education as well and, and, and they're getting the most out of their players and players I think who are enjoying themselves and enjoying um, their training I think those players by default will come out at a higher level you know as opposed to players who dread pre-season and dread running and dread laps and um, stuff that they know as players doesn't necessarily speak to what's happening on the pitch you know, and um, I think as as coaches and and whether it's SNC, uh, sports science, um, the guy that's a football coach on on the pitch, I think the more of our information we can get across to those guys, the more they'll be comfortable implementing it, without feeling like we're calling them out and saying, hey, you know what, what you did then, you know, was was basically bullshit and and it was basically um, a waste of time because I don't think it was. I just think as the game is moving. Knowledge from a tactical and technical point of view has evolved, um, just like from airfield, you know. So, um, for me in pre-season, um, strength was forced and foremost, and then energy system development then started to come in on top. And I had a little thing where I like the analogy of saying, you know, in the off-season it was a capital S and small C, and as we flipped and got towards the season, then it became a small S and a capital C. And, um, you know, where we focused and we dialed down heavy on the conditioning element of it. And, um, I think as coaches, the more work in the conditioning space that we can do with the ball at their feet, I think that ultimately speaks better to their happiness, you know, and to not being afraid on the pitch and let them make mistakes. And if it's a, an expansive attacking environment they're playing in, um, I think the more mistakes they make in the off-season, the more comfortable they'll be to try things when game day arrives. Yeah. I mean, as you're talking there, I mean, I'm just visualising everything that you're saying, and, and one word that's just kind of just flashing at the front of my mind is engagement, engagement, engagement. 
right? I'm looking, I'm, I'm thinking about them, thinking so much, but ultimately what you're saying is, right, well, if the players aren't engaged, doesn't matter what you're going to do, even if, it, even if it is beneficial for them, in the grand scheme of things, they're not going to want to do it. So I guess, for me, you know, I, I, I you know, in terms of the on-field stuff and working with players, I, I kind of worked out over the last few years in particular a couple of different variables which I think are just going to get any player engaged. And that's ultimately, like you said, largely having a ball at their feet. But obviously from your perspective, um, from the physical side of things, that's not always the practical thing to do either. So what are some of the considerations that you need to make, obviously, within that? And, you know, in, in the recent years, obviously, I've spent a lot of time in and around elite environments, watching people do, it, do, do you know, work in the strength and conditioning space and even the, just the physical development space with athletes with different levels. And, you know, some of the attention to detail that goes into the, some of the work that they do, for me, it's just mind-blowing in, in terms of how specific it can be and how... The, you know, those minor details really make a big difference in the grand scheme of things in terms of developing their physical capabilities, but obviously then having a knock-on effect in anything else that they do as well. So, you know, where, where, where did that kind of, you know, where, first of all, what are, the, what are the key things that you identify that as an engagement factor for players? Obviously, you mentioned there about the ball, but obviously if it's something that you need to know without the ball, what would that look like for you? Yeah, good question. So, I mean, we take, for example, um, Take, for example, hamstrings. So there'll be a certain amount of work that I would do without the ball that's literally just, you know, to give them bulletproof hamstrings. You know, and if you speak in terms of bulletproof hamstrings, any football player who's played the game, you have them engaged. You know, um, bulletproof knees, you know, stable ankles, um, power off the spot, power out of the pocket. You speak in terms of... of of that to any football player and you've got then immediately a small window of opportunity to tell them next what you're going to do. Um, so what would tend to follow that conversation up would be, okay, so now we're going to do a set of hamstring runs. They're straight line runs over a long enough distance with a peak halfway through them and a deceleration on the far side of them. So these runs, we would tend to sneak in in amongst some other football games or, you know, whether it be small-sided games or possessions or um, 11v11s, 9v9s, whatever the case may be. Um, so from that point of view, uh, that's one of the runs that I would do. And again, I see this an awful lot. I'm not quite sure about these runs afterwards, but running players after a game, um, you know, the subs are maybe the lads who only play 10, 15 minutes. Um, purely to tick a box. And the problem we had in, in Ireland is our games are always Friday evening. So we can be playing away. Dublin is, I suppose, central to everywhere in the country. So we can go three hours north or three hours south. Three hours north will take us up to Derry, who would, have, who would also be one of the top teams in the league. And three hours or two and a half hours south will take us to Cork, who would also be, you know, one of the top teams traditionally. Um, so we would find ourselves at 10, 10 o'clock in the evening taking subs back out after the game um, to run them box the halfway line, let's say. Um, more so just to get their numbers up as per the data we're gaining from the GPS. I'm not quite sure about those runs nowadays, you know, um, because they're not engaged there. There's no way that they want to do them runs. For me, it's a case of get them in the next day. Um, let the lads, you know, stay at home who've played the game. Let them have a mental and physical reset. Um, and and maybe maybe run those guys and, and, and then after those runs, 
you know, you can include the ball and have some small-sided games. In theory, that's the best way for me. It doesn't always work out like that in football. So some cases you make allowances and you say, OK, we got to get these runs done and you'll just do them that even. Um, another thing is speed and agility work. So speed and agility work without the ball at their feet. Um, at grassroots level and underage level, by all means, use whatever tools you've got, whether that's cones, whether that's hurdles, whether that's ladders. Um, but as you get towards under 17s, under 19s, 21s, 23s, and full t- full squad or senior team, um, I think removing those tools and maybe just having band work, um, replicating sort of sled or prowler work, adding some heavy resistance into that work, um, and then a lot of plyometric work as well, you know, uh, ballistic movements, whether they be lateral, horizontal, uh, vertical, um, explosive work, and, and developing real power out of the pocket um or starting so initial rate of force work and i think just using the right terminology um will get you that engagement from the player and hey you know what nine out of ten players will prefer to do speed and agility work than hamstring runs um so you can dress up the hamstring runs any way you want we had one that we used to do or i had one that we used to do maybe from the corner flag hug the touch line up to the halfway line and then double back on yourself in a diag across to the other hand, uh, to the other corner flag. You'll have a reset and a rest at that corner flag and then repeat the same move, which takes them across in a sort of an M and a W shape across the, across the pitch, if that makes sense. Um, so, so yeah, the engagement is the very first thing you need to get because you're right. Whatever you know after that is going to be irrelevant if you don't have their attention. And if you can't actually help them to see the value in it, um, you're going to struggle to get them to max effort. And, um, you know, you guys being, you know, at the beginning of the season and having just done that pre-season, what we can't do is let go of what we did in pre-season that really gave them a lot of benefit or a lot of reward. You know, so if, if, if as a coach, I'm honest with the players, I'm humble enough to understand I need this engagement, so I need to level with them. Um, and then I can sneak that information in then. So uh, you roll a football in front of any football, any group of players, and your biomechanical approach to, you know, setting up your sprint position and your high-speed position and acceleration, deceleration, all those things, they go out the window. So the more I can pattern that into them in the off-season and, and, and dial in on technique and dial in on posture and all that sort of stuff. Um, but then after that, then you have to recognise, you know, you need to... You need to to basically take the chains off them if you like and hopefully you've had them train you know sort of proximal uh, strength if you like and then that distal mobility and um the ability to hit the brakes and turn back in an o- in the opposite direction so you want to repeat as much of that as you can in the off season to condition the body for that end range body position which is where i think a lot of injuries impact injuries apart um where a lot of it uh, happens at end range, certainly in hamstrings and anything in and around the knee, you know. No, hundred percent. You know, I'm just, you know, I've got a bit of an insight around everything you're talking about. You know, I've got, I've had a history and background working in the fitness industry as well, and you know, working really closely with, um, with individuals on the physical development aspect of things. But there's some really key words that you kind of mentioned there, which might not be familiar with everyone uh, listening to the podcast. Um, so you, know, you talk there about the idea of you know having plyometric uh, work. You talk there about you know 
um, whether it's bilateral, horizontal, vertical type movements. For a lot of people, you know, really just kind of dipping their toe into this and really thinking, right, how do I start to develop and implement some of this stuff in my environment? You know, what what are some, what are some basic things that you can say, right, they, they, they can do to start to really implement that? And secondly, when you're now looking at, obviously you're looking at it from a physical standpoint, but if you've got a coach that's listening to this, thinking about, right, the on-field technical, tactical stuff, um, what are some of the considerations that you really want them to kind of take on board and think about in, from a physical perspective that might have a direct impact on the technical elements? You know, you know, some of the things that I'll be thinking in my head, right, okay, can we get them better with their movement patterns in terms of when they're turning off one side and turning off the other side so there's no imbalances and things like that? How do we start to bring that stuff in um, where we're in environments where we're not necessarily, um, you know, well-resourced, if you say? You know, and I, I know there's some basic ways which, which we can go about doing that, but you know, what are some of the considerations that you want people to start thinking about from that perspective? Um, so if we take if we take the area where there's a lack of equipment, and I'll include uh, GPS data as a lack of equipment. Um, well, then an awful lot of what we're doing is is by eye. You know, it's it's it's. You know, you can have some basic RPE, so rate of, ex uh, rate of perceived exertion charts that maybe you can check in with players after, uh, you know, after your, your, your high day, your high maximum training day, um, and understand sort of maybe, maybe more from time <clears throat> than actual data. So what I mean by that is um, we can have a training session that begins at 10 a.m. and finishes at 11.30. How much of that time are we working? How much of that time is maximum effort? So, you know, a simple way of doing that really is to have two watches or a stopwatch and, and a watch on your arm. And you can basically clock from the time you blow the whistle. If it's a football game, for example, let's say, it might be at 11 v 11, 9 v 9, 7 v 7, 5 v 5, whatever the case may be. How much time are they walking in that space? So if you have a chart and you develop, you know, just a basic chart or spreadsheet with 11 v 11, okay, on Wednesday we walked, 40 minutes and we rested 50 minutes you know and you, you you know you can see that your rest is outweighing your walk period does that make sense um and that can be a real basic way of knowing how much we're walking on a high day so your high day is giving you 40 minutes of walk how close can i get that to 45 minutes how close can i get that to 60 minutes but then we think about in the game 45 minutes at maximum effort is really what they want to walk. They'll rest for 15 minutes at halftime, they'll come back out and they repeat the same thing again. So can they recover? So their fitness can be gauged by eye, but can they recover and go again for another 45 minutes? You know, because that's the game. So walking, I mean, tactically and technically, the SNC coach for me personally needs to stay in his lane. And, and not focus too heavily at all on the tactics and, ta and, and technical end of it. It's, are we playing, let's say, a high press game? Are we playing a game where we hunt in packs? Are we constantly running? Or are we sitting back and waiting for the play to happen? And then we're responding to that. So that, go ahead. Um, yeah, just thinking, as you're speaking, you know, the question more specifically, I'm, I'm looking at it from a perspective of, right, if I'm, a, if I'm, if I'm the field coach, how much attention should I be paying it, you know, to some of the variables from the physical standpoint? So, for instance, you know, there's going to be certain movements that require certain 
proficiencies and obviously you know around, around like you said the bilateral stuff some of the explosive stuff some of the, the horizontal vertical stuff you know as, as a coach more and more as i'm as i'm doing this you know this 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 thing called coaching i'm starting to pay attention right okay what if there is a technique to something, yeah, have they, have they got the physical capacity to actually perform it effectively? Have they started to, you know, is there some of the stuff that we can kind of bridge in from the physical standpoint where we're actually paying attention to that? As an example, if I'm, you know, look, look, working on an action that might be spinning off to make a run running behind the centre back, as an example, am, am, I, am I looking at that and saying, right, okay, how effective am I doing it off, you know, turning on my right shoulder as opposed to turning on my left shoulder? And, you know, obviously these are some of the finer details within those movements, but I guess. How much of how much of an influence or how much of an impact would you be having from a, from a strength and conditioning standpoint or from a physical development standpoint around actually identifying what those things are or are you just going to say right okay rather than the specific movements we're just looking at the workload and rest of work ratios and things like that yeah so if i can break it down for you like this first and foremost what we're dealing with is a is a human body you know and everybody needs everything relative to the game so there isn't really a, a position and i include the goalkeeper in this there isn't really a position that we don't need to move in a three-dimensional space explosively um you know so so if you think of your six your your defensive midfielder maybe you can you know identify well hey every time he receives the ball he turns to his left he's very reluctant to receive the ball on his right foot and turn to his right well, that might be the most natural way to do it. But some of them would receive the ball on his right foot and turn back on himself over his left shoulder. But there can be players that you can identify are really re reluctant to move in what you would see as the most sensible way. You know, so to receive the ball and play forward, you might see a, a six that will receive the ball and constantly play back or play across. You know, so um, to take the ball on the half turn open out and play forward in an attack, a more attacking and expansive team may well be the best thing for that six. So then that's a conversation with him and that's specific work with him where you will constantly look for him to turn out the way you want him to turn out. And most players, as you get to the higher level, they will have the capacity to make that decision to turn whichever way is the best way to turn and not be limited by a physical reluctance to play off their, their weaker foot which can dictate why he's doing what he's doing. So um, it might be a case of, of you as the SNC as coach um, just doing specific work with him on that. Um, likewise with a player who's not comfortable playing off his weaker foot, it might be boxing him into having to play back to the defender or having to play a ball that for the manager or the head coach isn't what he wants him to do. So that player's position becomes vulnerable because he constantly keeps playing side to side or constantly play, keeps playing back to who passed the ball to him. So if you can help him understand what you want, what you want him to spend extra time with you, working in that position of turning off his weaker foot, or getting him more comfortable, exploding off that weaker foot, um, then I think there's real value in that from an individual point of view, and then obviously collectively for the team. Um, so so yeah, from I will sort of nitpick some stuff from the game. And, and, and round back on that player then when the time is right. Um, but I find, I find contact time is, is a problem at every level. You know, how much time can I get with this player individually? Um, and how much time can I get with the team collectively? Um, I still think we're earning our stripes in the game. 
you know, I, I still think a lot of the certainly older thinking coaches um, aren't maybe seeing the, the amount of value we can add to it. Um, and I think uh, even the younger, more forward thinking coaches who will by all means include a strength and conditioning guy or, or team, whatever the budget allows them to do. But I do think we're still earning our stripes and I think contact time is still a problem for us. I mean, I'd, I, I would have the players every day if I could. You know, I'd have um, more speed and agility work, more power, more speed, you know, more strength work even, even in season. Um, but I think, uh, like you say, um, it is important for us to understand how do we do it at both ends of the spectrum from a budget point of view. And I think coaches who are training, uh, who are coaching players in, in an environment where there's no budget, where we're using cones and bands and whatever we can get our hands on, uh, I still think we can hit the same, you know, there thereabouts, the same sort of movements and the same level um, if we really focus on, on on dealing with the contact time issue. And I think you make a great point. I think regardless of the environment you're in, whether grassroots in a performance environments or, you know, professional environments, I think the, the contact is always going to be a question. There's yeah. always going to be a debate around what's ideal, what's not ideal. If we had more time, what would we do with it? But I think for a lot of people probably listening to this right now, they're probably going to be on the opposite end of the spectrum in terms of, right, they've got very limited contact time. So how do they start to incorporate some of this stuff into it without it taking away from what they would consider to be the priority, which is the stuff on the ball, um, stuff and the, potentially the reason why the players are there in the first place. Um, no, what, what, what are your thoughts on that? Well, the first thing that goes through my head is to deal with the expectations from day one. You know, so if uh, if you're coaching at grassroots level or you're coaching in amateur football, um, from the off, if 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 a club wants you to come in to be the fitness coach, um, well, you've got to grab that straight away and 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 discover what their idea of the fitness coach is, and and what they want you to achieve as the fitness coach and I think when you find out I think when you hear the answer to that one you'll know the challenge you have ahead straight away you'll know the challenge you have ahead um if it's a tokenistic inclusion and you're just coming in for the club to say they have a fitness coach um then you got to manage the expectations around what they hope to achieve by that um so if we go and we add we break it into two 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 answers so the first answer I'll give you will be based on on the guy who's coming in tokenistically is is to understand that you've got to really get the maximum out of your players and with all due respect to the co to the head coach and the manager you've got to get the maximum out of the players without him knowing how you're going to get there you know so this is where we've got to take control of airspace and understand um yes i may not know tactically and technically anywhere near what the what the coaching staff know but i know what i'm going to do um, we, we have to use our warm-ups really carefully and this is where we can sneak in some of the work that we can do relative to what we're speaking about. Just on that, then, I think you make a great point because it, it, it happens quite frequently where you have got the tokenistic uh, fitness coach or whatever other role they may have just to say, yeah, we've got one. Um, and I, and I, I like, like how you put it because you've got to try and squeeze in that work wherever you can without even um, it being too explicit in at times. So would you say at that stage there, for a lot of the coaches probably listening to this, and you know, a lot of the coaches in this case might actually just be field coaches, technical coaches, 
maybe have no experience too much, you know, in terms of the physical development side of things specifically. But in terms of them starting to bridge some of this stuff in, would you say it's, at this stage, especially at grassroots, there was more about just exposure to what those things could be that the players potentially could be doing elsewhere? Or would you say there needs to be more consideration on how to actually implement a programme within that, if that makes sense? Yeah, good. good. So it's, it's, yeah, it makes sense. Um, so physical development, you mentioned. A lot of clubs, when you scratch the surface and you see they actually have what they will label as an athletic development programme, but it doesn't necessarily mean a physical development program. So what they're speaking about in my experience there is an athletic development program, meaning we have an academy, you know, and if, if they have an academy, um, then there's an opportunity to have an actual physical development program in there. I think from a, a global scale, or should I say like a, a macro point of view, um, to have an oversight, and a template that you, you try to create an ethos at the club that here's what we do at the side of a pitch in a council estate, you know, or during during training, you know, at the Etihad or, or, or Carrington or any of these, you know, top level places. Um, so we can have players who are familiar with the gym, let's say 15, 16, 17s, uh, 15s being the real point you want to grab them. You know, you really want to grab them at that point and start to introduce them to the weight room, start to introduce them to TRX, start to introduce them to uh, prowler walk, sled walk, um, barbell walk, um, you know, dumbbell walk, all of those sort of things. And if you're the fitness coach and you recognize that this is where you're at and you've got to get your information into them, number one, in the safest way, because you're not going to stand over them watching them do it. Um, so if you really are behind the, the, the athletic development plan um, or you're trying to implement an athletic development plan or a physical development plan, then maybe spending a couple of hours in the gym that they go to with the player, shadowing them for one, maybe two sessions. And you might have to take the hit on this in terms of, you know, being paid for your time or how you, you're spending your time. But if you really want to get behind that plan, and you don't have a gym in the facility or related to the club you're attached to, then maybe look at the payday coming when they arrive at 17, 18, and they get that break, if that makes sense. So if you're a coach and you're looking at this and thinking, hey, you know what, I'm just, a, I'm walking, you know, I'm walking and, and as the nine to five, or I'm, I'm, I'm driving a van nine to five and I got to get to the training pitch and I'm a volunteer, but I don't want to actually attach my name to something that produces no results. And, um, you know, so have a look at the longer game there. Can I be the guy who this player always remembers? You know, what? on his day off, this guy came to meet me in my gym and try to round up four or five of the lads from the team to all be there at the same time. I go in on a guest pass or, or whatever the case may be, and I spend an hour, maybe two hours with those guys, just purely from a technical point of view, showing them, showing them how, to, how to squat, showing them how to lunge, showing them how to hinge, um, showing them, you know, whatever movements I can create a really simplistic program for them to go and repeat and to repeat and repeat and repeat and not to look to get too complicated about it. I don't need to show them what I know. I just need to show them maybe four or five movements, definitely, definitely squat, lunge and hinge, um, definitely a sprint, definitely some deceleration walk, whether this is now moving on to the pitch with the ball. So your session one could be in the gym, 
showing them those five key movements, let's say, and really keeping it in a basic form and making sure that they're safe, number one. And then to take the second one of me free sessions out onto the pitch um, and, and to do some ballistic work. And what I mean by that is anything explosive, you know, anything, anything with, with a high velocity in it. And that can be, you know, jumps, you know, vertical jumps, uh, lateral shifts um, and sprints out of pocket and then showing them how to so sprints over a, over a longer distance and then shorter distance where we can have sprint and deceleration all in the one movement. Um, and to understand that that's what they're doing. Speak about decelerations. Everybody wants to have the Ferrari, but no one wants to get the brakes changed. You know, so so sprinting out of the pocket, um, but putting the brakes on and understanding how to set a position to move off in a different direction. So really simple, you know, four or five movements in and out of the gym um, that you as a coach might have to invest in your players thinking of the longer game, you know, and one of the industries, like the industry that we're in, it has to be the most tankless industry involved in any sport. So we've got to be comfortable with that and know, hey, you know what, I'm looking at now some players turning up in the Shamrock Rovers first team. A couple of them scored in the Champions League qualifiers recently. A couple of them are going on now to play. Um, we've qualified for the group stages of the Europa Conference League for the first time ever. And um, a couple of those young boys who I would have had exposure to at under 15, 16, 17 are now starting to turn up in the first team, um, you know, and, and, and scoring goals in, on, on a European stage. Um, so does it, does it, does a nice feeling in, in knowing that physically you had an impact with that player. Um, it's by no means the reason he's turning up there, but physically, I had an impact on that player. And, and for, for the amount of free sessions that I would have done with those players, there's the reward for it, you know? Yeah, spot on. I think, you know, one of the key things that kind of jumps out of me is just, you know, it's where can we gain 1%? Where can we get the small wins? Um, sometimes there might not be any monetary value off the back of that. It might be might just be volunteering your time, but like you've spoken about there, and I think you, you can learn sort of, um, experiences as a coach when you see a goal player that's gone on to do great on the physical. You're looking at it from technical tactical standpoint the impact you've had with that individual but i think another key thing that's kind of gone over probably going to be oversighted in what you said is that actually it's really about building relationships building relationships with your athletes key whether you're a field coach whether you're a physical performance coach or whatever other aspect of the, of the development process you're, you're involved in so talk, talk to me about it because obviously in a large part we talked you know we mentioned about engagement how important is it that they understand the why behind what they're doing for you? It's massive. You know, it's massive because it goes back to what we spoke about around engagement. If they don't understand why you're doing what you're doing, you're going to get, depending on the level you're coaching at, if it's, if it's grassroots, if it's amateur, or if it's professional or semi-professional, you're going to get maybe maximum five sessions or five opportunities with these guys. And after that, then, when they come in, they're having a bad day and you want them to go and do hamstring runs or you want them to go and do deceleration work or anything that's not sexy, right? Um, anything that's not involving the ball or putting the ball in the back of the net or making a save or stopping the striker from scoring, anything that's not involving any of those things, um, you're going to lose them pretty quick there, you know. So understanding the why 
is crucial and managing their expectations around how long it's going to get for the why to become an aha moment. And say, hey, you know, I couldn't do that six months ago. Or, you know, I, I really struggled to do that three months ago. And, and now I've just gone and done it. And I've either had an assist or I've scored or I've stopped somebody from scoring. And as the coach, when I recognize that transfer from something I've been doing with a player um, into one of the moments I just mentioned, um, let's take scoring a goal, being the peak. Um, then I'm homing in on it then later on and I'm saying, hey, all that work, there you go. You know, and it might be as simple as that. So paying attention to the, to the game itself is crucial for us, for the fitness coach. Um, for those moments especially. So then you come and you go to do that same unsexy session with the player again, and you've already told them, hey, this is why we do it. This is why we now go into the dark corner of the, of the, of the pitch or the training ground to hide from the coach who doesn't want to let me have this extra walk with you. Um, and we're going to sneak that walk in regardless. Uh, once you're safe, once it's not going to tax you too much, um, and that's where we manage our set range and our rep range and our, time, our contact time. But I just think at the front end of it, like the game bookends everything we do. You know, so everything we do outside of that is 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 what is where we we get the value. I totally get you, and I think you know, certainly one of the things I've started to implement in the last the last couple, a few years now um, within my own coaching is looking at right. How do we maximise the intensity? How do we get more efficient work rate out of the players? How do we how do we manage their work close to a point where we're actually literally maxing out, squeezing every bit of that orange juice, um, the orange juice we can? Coaches are maybe not familiar in terms of that sort of stuff. What are some of the considerations you wanted to make around it? Because there's obviously, especially within grassroots uh, coaches as well, a lot of them just want players just to work hard, 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 hard all the time. They're not recognizing that actually, no, they need to rest too. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. ratio needs to be right it needs to be efficient it needs to be it needs to be done in a way where they actually are benefiting from the rest and the rest isn't just short-lived and for no reason um but also when they're working they're working and we're trying to maximize that and obviously that's not the case for every single session depending on where you are in your week and when your games are and you know how, how your schedule looks but on a general level you want to try and maximize that as best as possible but where does it, where do you, where do you start to look at that? You know, from from a physical standpoint, if I'm if I'm just an you know a grassroots coach, uh, listening to this, thinking, yeah, it's all well, it's all well and good, us being able to do it, but where do we start? How do we identify what might be effective in terms of work to rest ratio? We haven't got the GPS vest, we haven't got this, we haven't got any of this data. If I'm looking at it by my eyes, um, where do I start with it? And just to kind of tell back on something you mentioned earlier as well regarding the SNC stuff. Um, if I, you, know, you, you said that, you know, kind of 15 is a good age to kind of grab them, get their attention around it. 
whatever the coaches that are listening to this thinking, right, I'd love to implement some of that stuff sooner, obviously not to the same standard, but start to affect and have an impact on the physical aspect of things from a younger age, what would that look like for you? So, you know, it's kind of two bits there. Yeah. So I'll answer the second bit first, um, and we'll deal with the younger kids. So we're talking 15 and below. So my approach to that, um, so obviously I, I, um, myself and yourself met in London on a, on a TRX for football workshop. And, and this is what we were looking at sort of implementing for that age group. So our, our approach at TRX has always been, you should be able to move in any of the patterns um, proficiently with or without a load. So what I mean by that is we pick, I mentioned to you about in the gym space, if we pick squat, lunge, and hinge, so squat, sitting down, standing up, lunge, walking up the stairs, walking down the stairs, and hinge, bending down to pull your trousers up, bending down to pull your, tie your shoelace. So if we can focus on those three movements alone, and maybe then add in some upper body elements to it, maybe, maybe plank, push, and pull. So there you've got three lower body, three upper body. If we can actually teach young kids to move proficiently in those movements using the TRX, they transfer over then naturally onto the gym floor then when the barbell and the dumbbells arrive. I hope that makes sense. So if we create a pyramid with a plank at the top, a push and a pull, now we've got your upper body ones. If we then have squat, lunge and hinge, and we dial in on those movements using the TRX straps, to unload the body yet still create some resistance when the kid is ready. If we start to create an ethos at any club, any level, using that approach, by the time true strength and conditioning arrives into their life and into their training week, they will already understand and their body will already understand and will have mapped how to go into those positions comfortably. And only by going into those positions comfortably can we then develop a strength program on top of that. If you load a movement and your body doesn't recognize that movement or hasn't mapped that movement, you're going to struggle and waste time trying to develop that. So really, really what you're saying is about laying the foundations, creating some awareness of the types of movements we're expected to perform um, rather than actually developing the strength aspect. When we get to about 14, 15 upwards, now we're saying, right, can we start loading it up? Is that essentially? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, take for example, take for example a guy who has a barbell on his back. He's 16 years of age, and his squat looks like shit. And he's, you know, he's he's all over the place doing this squat. He's not really hitting anything that he's trying to hit, if he even knows what he's trying to hit. Most players don't know why they're asked to squat, and this comes back to us understanding when and, and where, and and most importantly, the 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 athlete understanding why. You know, so if we if we have already spent time from 10 to 14, 15, unloading those movements, dialing in on, on exact technique, um, then by the time they come to the gym space and you're there giving your free time to, you know, show them now how to load those, well, if you've had that player in that, in the, in that space of developing those movements that I spoke about, then it's easier for you to show him the progression and why they're doing what you're doing. And then you can load it. Then he understands the movement. He already understands why. 
And he's almost been looking forward to this moment where he progresses onto the gym floor because now he feels himself. Now I'm at it. You know, if you have a player feeling what you're doing with him has him at it and, and he sees the progression right through, I promise you that player will never forget the impact that you've had on his training career. You know, it may not pay the bills, but it will lead to you having much more success as a coach and that will pay the bills. I think you're spot on. And obviously, you know, the, the other question obviously was looking at in terms of, right, how do I start to implement some of this stuff if I don't necessarily have the resources in terms of GPS today? So in terms of on the eye, what does that look like? You know, what are some of the things that I can start to do to bring this in without necessarily thinking, well, I'm losing my time on the pitch with the players. Is this is there little bits that you might recommend in terms of, you know, like we, we talked about what rest to work ratios and identifying what, well, what is actually effective, what's ineffective. Now, obviously, everyone's going to have their own ideas in terms of how they want their teams to play and, and whatever and how hard they want their players to be perceived to be working anyway. Um, but what are some of the considerations that you kind of encourage coaches to think about from that perspective? Well, let's say, let's say from an energy system development point of view and then the other branch then being strength work or conditioning work. Let's say just strength work. So if I create a scenario where we don't have any money, we don't have any equipment, we're playing, you know, amateur football on a Sunday morning or Saturday Saturday afternoon, and uh, how can I impact my players? So if I go with the strength thing, doing some eccentric or isometric work with bands um, or with any equipment you can get um, to load outside the body. Um, again, TRX comes into this as something that's really sort of accessible and maybe affordable and can be hooked up out in the park. Um, so can I, can I create an environment where my warm-up some days includes isometric walk, eccentric walk, in the positions that I mentioned? So let's say having your group hold a, a bodyweight squat position for X amount of time, hold a lunge position. So you're, you're hitting bilateral, unilateral. Can I do some, you know, paused press-up walk? You know, is there anything we can do some pull-ups out of? You know, um, can I create, create some fun within that environment and implement some of these movements within my warm-up? So if I get 15 minutes to warm the players up, am I just getting them running up and down to cones or am I implementing some of these body positions in an isometric way or holding them in those positions for X amount of time and increasing that time they can hold those positions for as I go. Okay, so that's something without equipment on the side of the pitch that we can do in, in a strength space, let's say. Yeah, if you're looking at developing resistance and strength under time, what, time under tension. Exactly, you know, um, but I've, I'm sneaking that in, you know, to the 15 minutes I've been allocated to work with the players just to warm them up. Um, obviously, on game day, you don't want to do any of that stuff, but you definitely can't sneak it in on training days. Um, I tended to have the exact same warm-up every day for game day, but always different warm-ups during the training week. Um, and then, in terms of, I'll always round off the warm-up with a couple of um, more central nervous system targeted stuff. So it can be just fast feet, slow hands. Um, drop and hold, explosive jumps, um, different landings, maybe split stance landing, bilateral landing, um, a landing to a shift side to side, 
um, continuing into a sprint out onto the pitch. Yeah, now done. Go ahead and, and and play the game, or go ahead and get the ball at your feet. Um, so there is there is a there is a load of scope to do that. Obviously, you'll have issues in your own mind saying, "Well, hey, it's not really true strength development if I'm not using anything outside of the body." But then we got to get real and understand that when you're in the trenches with football players, um, getting the barbell onto them or getting dumbbells attached to them or anything like that, whether it's a prowler or a trap bar or anything that we can use in that space becomes even more difficult. So you've got to weigh up, how can I best impact the players with the small amount of time and the, and the lack of equipment that I have? But then I'll go and I'll say, well, you've got to crack eggs to make an omelette. So how far do I push them? We have an awful fear of being the one who injures the player, you know? So as a, as a strength coach, um, one of the darkest moments you can have is when a player pulls up with a hammy or, you know, if an ACL goes or if it's anything other than an impact injury, you know, I think we should be questioning ourselves and say, well, what led up to this? What did I do with him this week? What did I do with him in the off season? Or, you know, I see Liverpool having an absolute nightmare with, with, uh, with muscle injuries recently and has me you know in my mind as a train coach I'm thinking I, I would love to see what the plan was in pre-season and and why all of a sudden when we go to game day we're breaking down in every position nearly except the goalkeeper um so have they changed anything you know has anything drastically changed there considering what they have but they have this in a cyclical fashion they had it a couple of years ago as well and um, where they started the season and instantly had a nightmare with muscle injuries so as the strength coach, at that end of the game, that would need to be looked at for at that grassroots level. I do believe that if we implement an ethos at the club where we're dialing in on these specific movements and we're allowing the fitness coach impact the players and we're not just bringing them in tokenistically, then I think we'll see less and less of those muscle injuries as we grow. I don't think we'll ever eradicate them. We certainly won't ever eradicate them. Um, but uh, the final point that I make on it is the walk to rest ratio stuff. Well, you can just scale that yourself. And again, it goes back to track how much they're walking for, recognize their positions and how much sprint repeatability they have. So your center backs and maybe your six and obviously your goalkeeper um, may not need to do as much of it as your attacking players, your wide players and your attacking midfielders. I, I, I totally get where you're coming from. You know, often I look, I, I often ask coach, or encourage coaches to think about right. Think about what the game looks like for the athletes that you're working with. So if you're working with a, an under 16 year old, recognize that that's a very different game to you know working with a Premier League player or whatever league it might be in at a senior level. But it's also very different to working with an under six or an under ten. Recognizing what happens in their game, identify the patterns of movement in their game, identify the trends in their game, rather than trying to base it on something that you eventually going to hopefully get them to if that makes sense what's actually happening in the game at the moment and it kind of just really springs uh, you know rings true for me there and around what you're saying in terms of that word that you used about having an impact now having an impact could be things something that, that that takes time but again where can you get those small wins and obviously the more representative of their game it becomes in terms of their training in terms of all of that stuff and bridging that you know, bringing that as close to an alignment as possible, obviously will hopefully speed that process up and accelerate that development aspect of things. But on the note of impact, obviously, you know, before we jumped on, jumped on and hit the record button on this call, 
we were talking about right some of the key things that we can do to just maybe support learning and development in that in that respect and obviously we're, we're speaking very heavily around the physical aspect of things but just on a general standpoint I think it often gets misunderstood and actually maybe not considered and really brought to the forefront of the minds that actually you as a strength and conditioning coach you still are a coach you still have to do things you know very similarly although you're talking about maybe specific the specific content that you're covering is very different to maybe what I might be covering my athletes um there's still a lot of you know a, a synergy around how we do things what at walk and a lot of alignment in terms of how it should be done if that makes sense so just just talk to me about that then you know what was what were some of the challenges that you have in terms of getting those messages across around what might be effective for the players and in my own coaching in particular, especially from a technical standpoint, I've kind of moved further and further away as I've gone um, gone over the years from prescribing set techniques and set methods of doing things for players because I wanted to become more autonomous and self-sufficient. But at the same time, obviously, for your from your side of things, it's probably quite different in that you'd say, right, there's probably a bit more um, rigidity in terms of what effective and good technique might look like in that respect. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I, I mean... What's jumping out at me as you're saying that, uh, Yaz, is, is, is basically, so if you go back to the word impact that you said, or that, that, that was mentioned, first impressions, um, humility in your message, and, and the why. So those three for me are, are key, and they begin in the car park you know, or in the reception or in, uh, you know, in that first part of contact. I suppose another thing we have to factor in is it also begins in how you carry yourself on social media. And, and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, so we spoke before we hit the record button about social media and about the, the content that, that I put out and how that has changed over the years for me and how I put out a lot less these days rather than before where I would have been sort of hustling to be noticed. And um, I look back at, if I ever go deep down on me on my social media, I, I quickly go straight back to where I am now because I don't want to really look back and see how active I was back then on social media maybe. And um, now I would rather uh, stay well off. And I think players, well, I know players, will do the homework. So for example, let's say in the middle space of semi-professional or professional um, players, or even I suppose, you know, adult players in the amateur game. And if they hear, well, Yaz is coming in to be our fitness coach, no way do I believe for a second, at least half of those guys aren't going to go to social media and check you out and see who they're going to be dealing with. Hey, is another guy kind of come in. He's going to come in and tell us to run and do this and do that. And, you know, so they're going to check you out. So if you're a coach and you're looking to grow into this space and you have aspirations of ending up in the professional environment, maybe check how you carry yourself on social media, you know. And I think that's a, obviously that's not related to what we do and what we let go of, but it's been watched. And the players will watch and the athletes will watch. And, and it, hey, you know what? Even the club you're going to become involved with will watch. You know, so so that, it kind of begins there. Maybe that's the new car park. You know, maybe that's where it begins um, for us to kind of consider. So having that in your mind is, you know, is images of me and the boys out having drinks or at a festival or, you know, whatever the case may be. If images of that are on my social media 
side by side with images of what I'm doing with a guy in the gym, I don't personally think that's, you know, you're not you're not thinking of the longer game there, like, you know. So that's one. Um, we also mentioned it doesn't matter what you know, it's what you coach that's important. You know, it's how you coach it and can you get it across. And if you dial that down into, like we mentioned about from a, from a strength point of view, having a handful of basic movements and doing them perfect, doing them really well. Um, and then from an energy system or a conditioning point of view, um, having a handful of movements that number one in the in the amateur game, can I sneak them in to the players? Some coaches at that level will be looking to fill the time that they have the players, so they may well give you a lot more. Well, then you've got to be coaching up to the management and across to the players. So you, coaching up to the management for me means, can I sell my ideas to the manager? And once I've sold those ideas to the manager, can I then coach them across to the players? Does that make sense? Um, and, and then from that point of view, then, as per what equipment or budget I have, if any, um, then I make my decision around uh, how much of this stuff do I need to give them in order to have that impact? Or, you know, if I'm thinking about breaking eggs to make an omelette, how far can I push them with the equipment that I have? In a strength sense, you're going to struggle there if you don't have equipment. So you're going to do more of it. And if you've got the equipment, then you've got to get your you've got to get your athlete training safely and understand how to show them that hey, by doing this with me is not going to affect you know how your body feels relative to the game on Saturday. And then you've got to coach that back up to the management and say hey, you know what I done this with the players this week and look how well we played today. It didn't affect. I'm not saying this is why we won the game or lost the game. That comes down to the, the to the other side of the staff. Um, but I am saying we can do this walk during our week and still peak on Saturday. So, you know, I'm thinking, I'm thinking about what you're saying then. It's, you're right. It's not, it's not what we know. It's what we coach. And the what we coach piece is really key here because the thing is we also got to be conscious that in the way in that which we uh, frame it, is, 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 is articulate in a way where the person that's receiving it actually understands what we mean by it and how, and how that's being processed. Because I think one of the biggest challenges I see obviously with a lot of coaches is that sometimes we, you know, we fall into the trap of, right, well, I've said what I want to see, I've said what I want to coach, so therefore they've understood it. And then you, you later get frustrated, say, well, you know, we've talked about this. Well, yeah, you've talked about it, but you didn't really tell me much about it. You just mentioned it. And, and that's kind of, you know, the way, the way I look at it sometimes. It's like, you need to then seek clarity and get that clarification piece around the players that, or the athletes or the coaches or whoever it is that you're trying to, I guess, sell that information to. Um, and I use that word loosely around sell, but um, whoever you're trying to get the message across to so that really they've understood, your thought, your approach rather should be trying to understand what have they taken from it rather than what have I tried to give them. Yeah, I mean, just because you said it doesn't mean you've coached it. You know, you can get on, you can get on a bus and, and you can tell the bus driver where you want to go. But unless the bus driver puts it in gear and pulls off, it's not going to go anywhere. So we've got to we've got to say it. Yeah, we've got to tell them where they want to go. But we've got to drive it. Then we've got to actually take them to that point where you then round back and and you sort of um, affirm, you know, with the individual. And everybody is different. So whereas I said early on in the podcast that first and foremost we're dealing with human bodies. So everybody needs everything, you know, relative to strength and conditioning. Um, but then you've got to specify and, and recognize when you're trying to 
actually break through a guy who maybe isn't receiving the information? Well, there's so many different ways of coaching and so many different cues we can give, whether they're internal cues, external cues, uh, tactile cues, verbal cues. Um, and you've got to find what works best for that individual because it goes back to the type of learning um, we're, we're delivering. You know, so we're educators, which ultimately we are, um, whether that's educating industry to industry or athlete, coach to athlete, we're educating. We're trying to get a point across in order to get the player from A to B. And not everybody is going to be diff uh, the same in that regard. So as a coach, as a basic level coach, we need to understand, hey, the reason this guy isn't doing what I'm asking him to do or moving the way I'm trying to get him to move or setting up a position the way I'm trying to get him to set it up isn't because the guy doesn't know what I'm talking about or understand or there's anything wrong with how the guy is receiving information. It's the fact that I haven't explored or found the most proficient way of helping that guy understand. So reverting back to the type of cueing you're using is phenomenally important. I can't stress that enough. And it's to not give up. You know, if you see the guy running and this guy is already on the gym floor or he's on the pitch, well, then there's nothing wrong with him physically in terms of can he get into this position? Why can't he understand what I'm trying to say? Well, you're probably saying it in the wrong way. You know, you probably haven't found the most proficient way to break through that guy's learning capabilities and understand that he just might need to hear it in a different way. And that might be an arm around the shoulder. It might be, you know, visual demonstrations of you showing them and guiding them into that position, locking it in and affirming it from there. Or it might be, you know, giving him something outside of himself to aim for. So if I'm trying to get him to move his hips in a certain direction and I want to get him to hinge, well, I've got to tell him to maybe move his hips back towards the wall. So using the wall or the goalpost or the fence or whatever the case may be is, is, is now an external image that he has. Oh, OK, so I'm looking to move my hips back towards the wall. Well, that's going to force him into a hinged position, you know. Um, or if I'm looking for him to, put, to jump higher, or to sprint hard, or maybe telling them to push the floor away from them is, is, is a more effective way of, of, of coaching that information into them, rather than telling them to just sit down or to jump. You know, so it might be as a coach to develop your skills around that. I, I think it's really interesting what you said, and I, and I totally agree with you. I use a lot of imagery. I guess. You're just losing your sound there. Uh, yeah, it's maybe come, come closer to me, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes, no, I mean, I, I totally agree with you because I use a lot of imagery and within my own coaching in particular, and I found it to be more impactful, definitely, especially because they they've got something visual they can kind of just react off or even uh, imagine for themselves as they're going through a movement, if you like. But I guess from this side of it, where we're looking at a technical standpoint, it's very, very different from looking at it from where you're looking at it because I guess. From a technical standpoint, there's so many different ways you can skin the cat, if you like. But from a from a physical performance aspect and physical development and actually making sure the movement patterns are correct and things like that, there's probably a lot more consideration around what's safe and what's acceptable and what's, um, you know, deemed as a, a potential hazard, if you like. So how do you ensure that, that you know, the, that your athletes are actually understanding those things? Because it's not like football on the or in terms of the ball-related stuff where... I can give them something to do and it's much more focused around an outcome that they're trying to achieve um, that they might be able to then take that away from the environment that we're currently working in and go and do it elsewhere. Does that make sense? 
as opposed to from you, it's like, well, well we need to make sure the movement pattern is actually correct. And it's not just based on an outcome and in, you know, as an example of you trying to lift a particular amount of weight. Yeah, I think, I think just to be clear on that one, and I mentioned earlier on, as soon as you roll a ball into that environment, best practice goes out the window. We got to accept that. I'm never looking at a player's technique running or turning or jumping during a game. It's, a, it's, it's not going to happen. So that's not what the goal is. But if we go right back to that under 10, 11, 12 age, where we spoke about implementing uh, perfect technique and certain movements on the gym floor in the training space, well, the real win there is to have them, let's say, as we mentioned about having people strong at end range, creating some proximal stability for distal mobility, creating an awareness in, from a central nervous system point of view um, or neuro neurological point of view, an awareness of it being safe to go in and out of any position, loaded or unloaded. Well, that stuff begins when you get the players on the training pitch or when you get the players at that academy age, under 10, 11, 12, what you do way back then is when that begins. If you're coming into an environment later on in the game and you're trying to have an impact there, well, you've still got plenty of time to fix those movements on the gym floor or on the pitch. But they're not movements that I'm looking to then see perfect on the pitch. Not at all. Remember, always when the ball arrives into it, you can forget about your sprint techniques. You can forget about your acceleration position. You can forget about your jumping, your landing, your twisting. You can forget about all of that. And I don't think there's anything more dangerous or putting the players more at risk than the actual game. So by then, it's not a case that we can ensure they're never going to get injured on or off the gym floor. Because if we're pushing in the gym, well, there is a chance they can get injured. But if you want them to maximize the strength and turn that into speed or power, well, you've got to get them to a level where there's a possibility they can get injured on the gym floor. But again, going way back to the car park or the social media analogy, We'll take that right back and then relate it to what have I done way back when? You know, have I shown them proper technique? Because it's usually only through incorrect techniques will they get injured on the gym floor. Or will they get injured during, you know, I don't know, hamstring runs or speed and agility work. But it's very rare. It is very rare. It's a lot less rare than them getting injured during an 11v11 or a 9v9 or a 7v7 or 5v5 or... You know, you scale that, you make those numbers smaller and the risk of injury goes up. Well, it's not from what I've done on, on the gym floor, you know, or in the warm-up. It's from the game. You know, we can limit the exposure to those injuries by strengthening and conditioning, which brings us back to how important strength and conditioning is in the game. So, I mean, there's a lot of good conversations to be had around that and hopefully we can provoke some of those conversations off the back of this podcast and... Um, but I do, I do believe that nothing puts them at, more at risk than the actual game. So understanding if you're a coach, if you're a, a, you know, a head coach, a manager, or a, a club director, or academy director, or whatever the case may be, understanding if you're bringing a fitness coach in, let him do his work. Yes, stand over it. Yes, make him explain what he's doing. Um, because there are a lot of guys in our, in our industry who can't explain what they're doing. And that needs to be called out because, as I, as I mentioned, we're, we're still earning our stripes. And we can have all, all the data, you know, way on down the road. But if you don't get these bits right, then you're going to have a lot more problems later on.
definitely. Like, as you're talking, I'm just, I'm just visualising the situation and, and thinking about it because I think you're spot on. I think, you know, as the coaches, whether we're strength conditioning, whether we're field coaches, and whatever we are in terms of the, in terms of the development process, we need to be able to clarify, um, not, to, not, not, not necessarily justify what we're doing, but we need to clarify under our, that we have got the understanding and knowledge behind why of what we're doing, if that makes sense. Um, so I guess... My question to you, as we, as we look to wind down there, is what are some of the considerations that you want people to be making as part of this process? Because if I'm now that head coach and I've had a fitness coach come in, or if I am the fitness coach and I'm being over and I'm being over, being watched by the head coach or whoever else is in the environment, what are some of the considerations that you want people to start thinking about actually to understand where this is coming from, why we're doing it, and what we're doing it for, whether it's actually effective based on the eye and my potentially limited or vast range of experiences, if that makes sense. Um, I think so. I was I was quite lucky with the manager I had with the head coach that I worked under at Shamrock Rovers. Um, a very meticulous guy, wanted everything explained, wanted to always know what was going to happen with his players, what 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 we were doing and stuff, and and that was fine. And was also scope for making mistakes too because we all make mistakes and we're all learning as we go so early on i would have made a good few mistakes as i was coming in and trying to get my head around the environment i was i was walking in and um so so he had set it up in a way that he allowed for that but we always spoke and always ironed out those mistakes but you're not always going to get that level of you know maybe understanding so let's say from a point of view where you're coming in from day one you're being watched you're being questioned and then you're being undermined because that's the pattern and and that that is happening in an awful lot of cases so it goes back to managing the expectations from day one are they bringing you in tokenistically and if so do you want to do that myself personally if we in, in an initial conversation um and i've had offers since the job at shamrock rovers and offers that i've chose not to take because there was an element of oh, well he was at Shamrock Rovers, so maybe maybe we should bring him in and stuff and having a conversation and recognising that that was the, the motive for asking me to come in without being too interested in what I was going to do or me getting to the stage where what am I going to be let do? Uh, how much contact time will I have or how much impact will I be allowed to have? Um, that was a red flag for me to understand, well, this isn't really for me. At, at grassroots and academy level, you know, I would imagine you're going to get an awful lot more opportunity to impact the players um i think before you do anything with the players you should know why you're doing it rather you know whatever about trying to explain it to the head coach or the manager um i mean if you can't explain it to the manager i don't think you should be doing the job really it's probably not for you but if you go in and you understand well hey you know what this is my first time ever working with a football team the manager knows that we're going to work together to see what we can implement and grow from there now that's a really healthy environment at any level, and well worth having a go of, you know. Um, and then you're going to make some mistakes, and you'll get better every day, and you'll implement better programs as you go. And by the end of that journey, you should be in a position then to stand over what should be a really good strength and conditioning program or a really good ethos at any level at any club, you know. And any plan or any ethos is better than no plan and no ethos, you know. Yeah, no, I think you're spot on. You know, I heard a saying the other day, and I thought this is brilliant. You know, they said, you know, um, if you don't know where you're going, any route will take you there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I like that. Yeah. Um, 
uh, I think you're spot on. So I think it is just having a clear plan in mind. I think as soon as you recognize what it is that you're working towards, you can also easily establish whether it's actually going to plan or not, and whether you're actually moving in the right direction or not. And moving in the right direction doesn't always mean it has to be a full steady pace. It could be yeah. at slow pace and at certain times, you know, you got going down and certain times you're going uphill. So I think that, that that's really key. So, you know, just as we look to wrap up, wrap up then, um, what are some of the key takeaways you want people to think about now? Thinking about whether they, whether they should or shouldn't impl- implement a strength conditioning approach if they haven't got it in their environment already um, or whether they're considering now bringing it into their environment in some way, shape or form. Where do they start? Well, I think they should have it at any level because the game is moving that way. And I think more and more clubs have implemented some form of strength and conditioning or, or, or have got some sort of fitness coach on board. So I think eventually we'll get to the stage where, you know, everybody will have it or everybody should have it because the game dictates what's involved off the pitch. So if you're coming up against teams on a Saturday afternoon who are physically more developed, who are quicker, stronger, uh, fitter, then if you're looking at that at your club and you're thinking, hey, we're miles off here, well, then you've got to go and look at how to improve that and how to bridge that gap. So I think um, for, you know, for people like us who are coming into the game, it's to understand straight away uh, what your lane is what that lane is going to consist of in terms of contact time, risk versus reward, and and can you dedicate yourself to it? Because the nature of sport, you're dealing with people who have a short career, very short career. So the less of their time you waste, you know, is the better. And you've got to give these guys every opportunity to maximise their potential. And we're in a position to do that. We're actually in a position to influence a person's career relative to sport. And if you get a 17 to 18 year old or a 15 to 17 year old football player who's talented and has maybe been scouted by some of the clubs. It's so important that you're honest with yourself and you're honest with the player. Can I actually impact this guy in the right way? Or if I'm winging it, I'm just going to waste two years of his career from having an impact on him. That could be the difference between that 5% or 1% that gets him picked whether it's an academy scouting program he's immersed in or whether it's just playing for his local team. Um, So you've got to be really aware, and I think we spoke about this in London, uh, really aware of how important we can be if we we have our our ducks aligned and if we're humble enough to say, hey, that's not for me. Um, and, And realistically, even implementing the program isn't really for you. It's for them. So I just think if you're in this industry and you're coaching, you've got to understand how important it is that we're dealing with human beings. In most cases, we're dealing with, you know, young guys or girls who have a really short window of opportunity to maximize their potential and don't waste their time. You know, think of the player, think of how best to squeeze that last bit out of them for them, because that might be the day that they get chosen by a certain club or they get that promotion or they get elevated into a position that, maybe they weren't in that position in the first place. So for coaches, humility in your coaching, explore different ways of getting your message across and um, really sort of condense it down to exactly what's needed rather than what I can show. I think it's one of so, so many things that you know, align with me. It's largely been about the physical. I think just as a whole, as a whole you know, we are looking at... 
us as well. Do I have the skills, have enough knowledge for this? Um, you know, a lot of the work that I do away from coaching specifically is around mentoring. And is doing You're struggling with the sound again there, yes? No, I was just saying that obviously a lot of the work I do around um, outside of coaching is around coach mentoring as well. And um, often I have situations where coaches approach me and say, right, yes, could you support me with this or could you support me with that? The first question I ask is, why me? Why me? Because, you know, I guess for me, I'm at, I'm at that stage in my journey as an individual where I, I recognise what I can offer and what, bring, what I can bring to the table. And I've got, um, I guess, a, a certain level of self-confidence in that as well. Whereas I think what happens is with a lot of individuals, especially earlier on in their journeys, they, they're not too sure where they can add value. So they try and add value everywhere. Um, and, you know, sometimes it's okay to say, actually, that that's not me. I, I don't do that. Um, and I think that's that's a key piece for you know for really anyone to think about whether you know whether you're a coach, you coach mentor, or whatever aspect of uh, life you're in. I think it just allows us to then identify our strengths and potentially develop into super strengths a lot sooner than just trying to be able to become a jack of all trades, if you like. Yeah. Um, not to say that we can't keep developing and start you know always get better at what we're doing, but I think that's really key. Um, no, Darren, look, you, no, sorry, yeah, one, one thing that I just want to say, and this is going to sound like a promotional thing, which is not necessarily what I'm trying to do, but off the back of the conversation that we've had, and obviously um, myself and yourself met at the TRX football workshop, after working with Shamrock Rovers for five years, um, we sat as a group with TRX, and, and the, the guys at TRX asked me, hey, can you write a program that is accessible for all levels and relates to football? So I put together that program, which we're, we're rolling out here in Ireland and, and across the UK. And maybe somebody find value in it that's listening to the podcast. It's a really simple program um, and one that we will be in the UK. We are sort of moving around the UK over the next couple of months. Um, and, and if you're a coach at that level or at any level for that matter, and you think we can add some value into your coaching repertoire or your coaching toolbox, uh, maybe have a look at reaching out to TRX, Nathan De Rosario at TRX, and, and, and finding out how to get your hands on this program because it's a really valuable tool and one that I wrote for us, you know, not necessarily for, for you know, a, a promotional point of view or a sales and marketing point of view, but it's a coaching, it's a coaching workshop, you know. And certainly, look, if, 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 I think the key thing for me on this podcast, and, you know, to come back to where I started, Sharing information. Key thing for me about you know was about sharing information through the, this podcast and making sure that people have got access to information that they didn't know was out there. Mm. So I, you know, I definitely would encourage that. Now you know just on that note, if you've got anywhere maybe they, if, they, if people wanted to kind of get in touch with you directly to find out a little bit more about this conversation and anything that's been discussed here or even some other pieces around what they're doing, is there someone yeah. they can do that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm obviously, I know we, we spoke about social media. So Darren Dillon, Kickstart Fitness. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. I can be got on Darren at kickstartfitness.ie on email um, or any of those usual channels. And I'm, I'm always happy to chat with coaches or uh, connect with coaches who are looking to kind of share information or, or, or gain information, whatever the case may be. So any of those social media platforms um, and, and, and email as always. Yeah. Darren, look, thank you again for your time today. I really appreciate it. You know, honestly, it's got me got me thinking about some of the things that I can now go and do within my own coaching environment as well as share with others around how they can maybe, I don't necessarily change or revolutionise what they're doing, but just to start thinking, approaching things from a different different perspective. Um, 
but no, thank you again for your time for today, Darren. I really appreciate it. No problem, Yaz. It's a pleasure and getting getting each other thinking. That's the goal, my friend. You know. So um, listen, a pleasure to spend some time with you in London and great to catch up. And I look forward to doing it again soon. All the best, mate. Thanks very much. There you have it, guys. Another episode of the Coaches Network podcast, where our aim is to bring the world of athlete, talent, and personal development together to just one platform. And you can help us with that mission right now by sharing this episode or any of your favorite episodes with everyone that you can think of. You can tag us in those mentions as well on Instagram at the Coaches Network or on Twitter at the Coaches Net. We look forward to hearing from you. Let us know what you thought about today's episode. And until next time, guys, take care. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.